Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast and continuing with our series on frequently asked questions. Today we are talking about the top 10 frequently asked questions about mixing. So I get a lot of mixed questions on email from podcast listeners and from patrons and subscribers and you name it. And uh, generally, I tend to keep finding some of the same questions and totally understandably because so many of them are the questions you see all over the internet that some of these questions that you would ask the pros if you had the chance to, um, these are just really common things that we all struggle with that everybody seems to have a different approach to, and as do I. So I just want to clarify before I get started on these things that so many of these are opinion-based and they are dependent on the person that you ask. And I'm certainly not the final word on any of these. Um, Just know that with anything in recording, especially with mixing, so much of it is about you and about how you decide to handle some of these issues and you know, you may choose to do it a different way. So just realize that there's pretty much going to be another way that you can do these things. I'd just like to take a minute to talk about our sponsor for this episode, which is Sound Porter Mastering. So Sound Porter Mastering is a mastering studio run by Brian Murphy that offers competitive mastering rates for your projects. And when I say competitive, I mean they start as low as 36 bucks a song. Brian is also a Recording Lounge listener, fan, and supporter, so that's a big plus. One of the trademarks of Brian's process is what he calls the iterative master. So Sound Porter recognizes that a good master starts with a good mix, but often we don't know exactly how something's going to sound after it gets mastered. And that can be a little bit stressful because we're hoping that our mix holds up and everything. But, uh, you know, if you got back a master and wanted to send a slightly tweaked mix, many mastering studios would charge you for a full remaster. That's where the iterative master really comes in handy. With this process, you can send your mix to be mastered. And once you hear it, you can tweak the mix as needed and resend. Soundporter will run the updated mix through the chain again for a very small fee, which is, you know, a really awesome thing. Seriously, it is a huge pain when you get a surprise in the mastering process, right? Only to realize, man, I should have done that differently in the mix, or, oh, okay, if that's going to happen, then I should have made the mix a little bit brighter or thinner or fatter or whatever it may be. Plus, you've got a real human being at the other end of the chain, not just some online algorithm. And Brian can give you feedback and thoughts and tips. So if you're interested in learning more about SoundPorter, check out soundporter.com. That's S-O-U-N-D-P-O-R-T-E-R. Read through the FAQ page and contact them to book your project or if you have any further questions. Thanks for being a supporter of the podcast, Brian, and being a sponsor of this show. Without further ado, let's talk about the top 10 frequently asked questions about mixing. Okay, number one, how loud should my mix levels be when I send to mastering? So there's a lot of misinformation circling around about this, and I can tell you from experience working with professional mastering engineers with the people I use pretty often, as well as I've had songs sent to Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound. I've used 
uh, Garrett Haynes over at Tree Lady. I've used people that are reputable and have worked on many, many, many albums. And most of them will tell you kind of the same thing. I don't really care exactly how loud the mix levels are in terms of RMS, but ideally, leave me some room to work in terms of RMS and peak. There's not a fixed number that they say... You know, uh, it has to be this loud in terms of RMS or peak. I would say a good general rule is to is in terms of RMS level, don't try to necessarily get it as loud as you possibly can before sending to mastering, um, especially with the use of limiters. I always have been an advocate of not using a limiter on the master bus. Obviously, if you're going to send something to a client for them to check out, you might need to pop a limiter on, but don't necessarily mix into it. Again, that's totally just my opinion. There are people who completely mix with, you know, limiters on their master. I don't personally advocate doing that. But a lot of mastering engineers will tell you they don't even necessarily care if it hits zero. The point is that it's not slammed and and limited the whole time because they can't really do much to it. And I have found, in my experience, it works best to send them a relatively reasonable level, which in my experience has been around negative 12 to negative 16 RMS, which might seem like a lot. Now, again, this is RMS level. Peak level, however, anywhere from negative six to, to zero, really. But I try to leave room in there for the mastering engineer to work. Typically, I'll find myself having an RMS of maybe negative 14 or so and my peak negative three or so, something like that. So essentially, I have a crest factor of about 10, 11, 12, 13 dB, depending on my peak level. Uh, and again, a crest factor is the difference between peak level and RMS level. So essentially, how much dynamic range you have. So, you know, depending on the mix, depending if it's more dynamic music, maybe that's higher, maybe that's a 14 dB or 15 dB crest factor. Um, maybe it's a 10 dB crest factor if it's more intense music. But I still try to mix with plenty of headroom for mastering engineers to do their thing. Um, again, there's not a fixed level that people say you must send to a mastering engineer at this much. Again, for example, if your mix is crushed, you know, an RMS of negative six, and then you just turn it down to, you know, by three dB, you didn't really do anything. You didn't actually help the mastering engineer by just turning down your peak. Um, it's, I think it's more important to give the mastering engineer a little bit of room in terms of crest factor as well as peak level to, to do what they need to do best. That's just my opinion. So yeah, there you go. Number two, what are your thoughts on mixing on headphones? So this question is a little tough for me because personally, I don't like headphones. I don't like listening to music on headphones. I really honestly try to avoid them whenever I can. I so much prefer the sound of music coming through speakers or even in a car. Um, headphones just bother me personally. I don't like the you know them constricting on my head and even really comfortable headphones. It just I get tired of wearing them and, you know, so so from a very personal level, I just don't really like headphones to begin with. So the idea of mixing on them, that alone turns me off for, you know, especially because it can be hours and hours in a mix. However, I will say there is some merit to the idea that if your room is 
crap. I mean, terrible, an untreated, small, little cubic room. You can probably get better, more accurate results on headphones than you could on speakers. It takes a lot of work to get a room accurate. As you've probably noticed from me ranting about it over the years, it's super important and it's super difficult. It takes very proper placement of the speakers and the listening position. It depends on a ton of factors like what furniture's in the room, how big is the desk, do you have a bunch of racks full of equipment? Those become boundaries and the the sort of pressure nodes change. Is the room treated? How well is it treated? I mean, there's so many factors when it comes into that. It even comes down to, you know, are you using DSP on the rig? All this stuff, there's so much that goes into getting a room accurate with speakers that comparatively, if you can get, you know, for example, if you spent $1,000 on a really nice set of headphones, that $1,000 compared to spending $1,000 in a room is miles above in accuracy because to get a room really accurate you might be talking about a thousand dollars in treatment alone probably more honestly and and that doesn't even include the monitors or if they're passive it doesn't include an amp i mean you could easily spend five six seven thousand dollars to get a room accurate whereas you could get roughly that same accuracy from thousand dollar pair of headphones So, like I said, there is some merit to mixing on headphones, especially if you're in a small space. I cannot personally comment on how well it really works or what headphones are the most accurate or anything, because like I said, I don't mix on headphones. I use my speakers. I do have an accurate room. I have worked really hard to get it that way. Um, so I'm, that's just not something I really feel comfortable suggesting, like, but obviously there are tons of reviews and information out there on the internet. I've heard amazing thing about, amazing things about Grado headphones. I've heard amazing things about, I believe, Audis or Odsy. Am I pronouncing that correct? I don't remember. Uh, Audis, I think. Um, uh, there's so many great headphone companies out there, uh, that people really love and that people will trust for mixing and checking things. I will say one thing I do like about headphones. Um, I use a pair of biodynamic headphones from time to time, just if I want to really focus in and check out some things in a very quiet, silent sort of way, such as edits, um, and I just don't really feel like listening over speakers, um, I can kind of tune out the world for a second. Uh, They can also come in handy, for example, if I need to edit something and I have clients in the room, I can put on the headphones and kind of shut out the world, and they can talk back behind me and not be distracted by my edits, and vice versa, I can, you know, edit and not be distracted by their talking. So obviously headphones do have their uses. Every studio is going to have some, whether they're fancy or more isolating or, you know, whatever, it's just going to depend. I have tons of pairs of headphones. I just don't prefer to mix or master on them or anything like that. So yeah, hopefully that gives you some place to start. Go do your research and check out what headphones people are uh, having good results with in a mix uh, stand from a make mix standpoint, um, and realize that if your room is really, uh, really troublesome, they might actually be a better option for you. Number three, why does mixing take me so long? So this is a great question and it's a really common question that I get from people, especially when they first start mixing, you know, they'll tell me about how a mix took them days and days and days to get to sounding mediocre. <laughs> So 
I the only thing I can tell you is that everybody goes through this. I, I really do believe that. I went through it. Almost anybody I know has gone through it when they very first start mixing their first six months or a year or even a couple years of mixing. It can seem to take days to get reliable results. And even then, the results are still mixed. And so much of that just comes from developing your hearing, understanding the goals of mixing and getting something from point A to point B, developing your skills, developing your ear training, developing your sort of mental image of how to frame a mix. There's so many little factors. Again, Dave Pensado said it recently on a video, and I've said it a hundred times before, is that mixing isn't really just one thing. It's not a skill. It's really hundreds and hundreds of tiny little skills that you just have to develop. You know, compression is kind of its own skill. EQ, kind of its own skill. And then there are sort of mixed specific skills like how do I use reverbs and delays to blend, you know, tracks together in a mix and create depth? And th- all of these things take a long time to learn. And so therefore, I promise you, uh, you will get faster at it. You will get better at it. Now, I will say this, and I I have to include it because I, I know it to be the case. If your monitoring environment is not up to snuff, it will take you so much longer to mix because your your monitoring chain is lying to you, okay? You can be hearing things that sound great in the room, and then you take it to the car, and it sounds terrible, that is indicative of monitoring issues or indicative of sort of ear training, perhaps, uh, or your ear is not developed to hear sort of where it needs to go. So a couple tips on that front. Definitely check out your room, check out your monitors. If you don't have measurements, you don't have proof of anything. That's that's just the simplest way I can put it. If you don't know with visual representation from a measurement microphone that you have taken tests on your monitors, you cannot know how accurate your speakers are. No matter what you think, you can't because every room is a little bit different. Everybody's got different, you know, like I said, furniture in the rooms, their speakers are in different places. Uh, unless you take measurements, you can't really know what's going on. So, the other part of that, though, is is developing your ear. And I know people who have good rooms, but when they first start mixing, they still struggle. And I think so much of that is just developing your ear over time. So on that front, I would recommend using reference mixes and putting them in your session. A plugin that I really enjoy for this job is a plugin called Reference. I don't remember exactly who makes it, but it's a cool plugin that allows you to level match your session and a reference song that you drag in and you can A, B between them and you can hear what does my mix sound like compared to this mix? And and if they're level matched, that's the key. They have to be level matched. Um, then you can really hear some interesting differences. You can realize, oh, wow, my vocal's really quiet or my drums are super loud. And that will help you start developing and training your ear to the sort of representation that needs to happen to create the illusion of a band or an artist playing in front of us. Like sometimes I'll get questions from podcast listeners and they'll ask things like, well, I'm having trouble like framing the mix where like the vocal stands out and I've got all this width and yet the drums are powerful and all this. And, you know, I kind of have to respond with like, well, you're kind of asking me how to mix, you know, 
it is a challenge. Like I can't tell you in one glorious answer how to make a mix sound like the pros. <laughs> I mean, I, I just can't. That's the way that I tend to focus on it through uh, my teaching and through the podcast is focusing on understanding the tools and the techniques and developing your ear and trusting your workspace and yourself to where over time you will be able to understand, oh, well, I want to push this back in the mix. Uh, here's a collection of techniques that I can use to do that. I want this to have more impact. Here's a collection of techniques that I can do that with. Uh, you know, I want to create width. Here's a collection of ideas that I can do that. You know what I mean? So if you go back and you look at some of the podcasts, you'll see that my topics might be more about technique and about um, tools than they might be about like quick tricks to make your mix amazing. You know what I mean? It, it, because I really want people to understand what they're doing because it, it frees you up to then adapt to different genres, different types of music, different types of recordings. Because if all you know how to do is make your kick drum sound good, what happens when somebody sends you another kick drum? Right? What happens when you get something else to mix? What happens when you buy a new kick drum and immediately you, you record it and you think, well, it sounds good, but now none of my tricks work. That's the thing. You can't go on tricks and, and presets and things like that. That doesn't really teach you how to mix. That teaches you how to mix what you know. And I know a lot of people who get into the audio game and within a handful of years, they get really good at one thing, but then something else comes their way and they can't touch it. I've known engineers who get really good at a certain genre and they get a lot of work in that genre, but then when the local scene kind of dies down in that area or that music is not popular in the grand, you know what I mean, in like the, the grand scheme of the music world and it shifts more to, you know, country music or pop music or singer-songwriters or whatever, they're kind of left in the dust because they didn't really learn how to mix. They learned how to mix this one genre. And my goal is always to teach people about the tools and techniques and how to listen and how to, uh, as I've said in many podcasts before, listen and respond, right? Listen to what you, you have and respond with your knowledge of techniques to, uh, to get the result that you need. Um, so anyway, I, I hope that's so, somewhat helpful and it gives you some encouragement. Mixing does take a long time. And when I started, it took me... So if, if this gives you any bit of consolation, the one of the first full-length records that I mixed was one of my own. Um, originally, I got into this to work on my own music, so... Uh, you know, I had, I'd done, I'd done some singles and EPs and stuff for people, but really one of the first full length records I did was my own. And I somewhere have a stack of CDs that is probably 18 or 19 CDs that is, uh, my mixes of the record. So mix A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, all the way down to like mix Q or something. And it took me so many times. And I even had nice monitors at the time, what I, you know, what I considered to be nice monitors. My room was not great, but I, I still like was trying. And I mean, I must have spent months mixing that record. I mean, 
actual months. You know what I mean? I might be able to get through one song a day and then uh, for mix A. And then so that alone was, you know, 10 days. And then maybe I'd spend another 10 days on mix B and another 10 days on mix C. I mean, I spent forever mixing that. Now, fast forward to today, pretty consistently, I can get a solid mix A in about six or seven hours for almost any client, whether it's 30 tracks or 200 tracks. I can get a solid mix A from that. A mix A, mind you, that is likely better than my mix Q from 10 years ago. You know what I mean? 15 years ago, whenever that was. And so, so it does get faster, I promise you. And the more you develop the, your ears, the more you can trust your space, the more you're familiar with your space, the more you're familiar with your monitoring and all this, the more you can trust yourself, the better you get at all these techniques, it will get faster. Now, I, I don't know the secret to, to making it get lightning fast, right? Like some of my favorite mixers claim to mix, you know, two, three songs a day. People like Michael Brower, you know, um, I have a friend who did a record with Michael Brower and uh, he said that he would mix three songs a day and they sounded amazing. And I mean, three songs finished a day, no tweaks. They were done and they sounded amazing. And that I'm really jealous of that. I would love to be able to mix three songs a day. I haven't gotten to that point yet, but I'm still striving to get to that point. Um, another thing I will also say is there are some 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 things you can do to speed it up just from a logistical standpoint, such as templates and, you know, developing systems for yourself, such as, you know, uh, this is, you know, how I start my session with all of these effects and these buses and, uh, you know, I work from the buses and save myself a lot of time doing the top-down mix thing. Um, you know, there's lots of techniques like that. But uh, even still, in the bigger, I mean, that might save you an hour per mix or something, an hour or two per mix, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily give you that real speed advantage, but it will help. I do think that that going from, you know, two days down to six hours is is a function of ear training and experience and time and just being patient. Um, if you listen to my top 10 noob mistakes episode, I can't reiterate enough that one of the most common noob mistakes is being impatient. This stuff takes a long time. I know it's frustrating. I know it seems like you're not getting better, but trust me, you are. You're going to listen back to stuff you did six months ago, a year ago, and be like, wow, I am so much better now. And that's the idea. Now, if you listen back to, to stuff you did six months ago and it's not better, that's when you might need to start asking some hard questions. Um, did something change in your setup? Did something change in your monitoring? Something change on your master bus that maybe realistically is not beneficial? So, yeah, hopefully that helps you and gives you some encouragement on why your mixes take so long. Number four. What's the secret to getting my mix to gel? Is it just master bus compression? So this is a great question because to me, getting a mix to gel, I could probably do a whole episode on this and I probably should, but to me, getting a mix to gel starts at the very beginning. It starts at the songwriting. For example, if the kick pattern and the bass rhythm are fighting each other, 
you'll have a hard time getting your low end to gel. But if the kick and bass follow each other really well and they're played really well together, then it's much more likely to sound gelled from minute one. Similarly, if the vocalist tends to rush or tends to drag, it very likely will seem like they're not a part of the performance. They won't seem tight with the band. Similarly, guitar players tend to rush a little bit. Um, That's just common. I find it a lot. If their rhythm is not locked in and driving the song and sort of holding down the middle of the record, you know, if drums and bass are solid and and vocals are solid, that mid-range can just feel sloppy and not a part of what's going on. And I can tell you from experience that the better the musicians are, the better the artist is, the better the songwriting and the part writing and the arranging is, the easier it is to get a mix to gel. It really is much, much easier. But assuming we have that, I'm going to give you some ideas, some tips for getting a mix to gel. So I believe in mix bus compression but I believe in it in varying ways. I almost always use mix bus compression of some kind. Sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes I'm compressing like a dB. Barely. Other times I'm compressing more like three or four. It really depends on the music. It depends on what sounds good. You really do have to uh, check it for each mix that you do and just see what's working. I'm also a believer in putting that on pretty early in the process. It's one of the first things that I do. Generally speaking, as many of you might know, I start my mix with the vocal. I try to get the vocal to sound great. We're going to talk about that here more in a second. And then um, I might bring in my bass and drums. And I try to get my drums and bass and vocal all sounding right together. If I can get that relationship working really well, my main rhythm, my main chord changes, and my main melody, then all the other stuff is a lot easier to fit in. And realistically, it's all subservient to those things anyway. I mean, it's subservient to the vocal and the rhythm and the main chord changes. That's kind of what everything else is, you know, subservient to. So, I am a believer in mix bus compression. There are certain situations where I will put my mix bus compressor on my music bus. So, I I will typically mix into three sub-masters or sub-buses where I have an all-vocal bus, so all of my vocals, lead and backing, will go to that. I have an all-music bus, and then I have an all-effects bus. Now, the all-effects bus is more just for convenience. I don't really do anything to it. It's just there as convenience if, you know, I need to uh, mute all the effects or turn them up or down, you know, globally. So there are some situations, especially in a lot of country music or Christian music or music where the vocal needs to be really loud. It's just common in those genres um, where putting a mix bus compressor on the master uh drums and the vocal can kind of push and pull in weird ways and I would rather just let the vocal go straight to the master bus and put the mix bus compressor on my music bus. So I'll still have my EQ on the master and I'll still usually have some type of saturation, a tape plug-in or something on the master, but I'll just move my compressor over to the music bus only. So the vocal 
goes straight to the mat. All the vocals go straight to the master, but then the music goes uh, to the bus compressor and then to the master. And that in certain situations works better. In other situations, the solution is to blend in a little bit of dry signal. So maybe you compress a little bit more on the master bus, but then you use some sort of compressor plugin that has a wet dry knob that allows you to blend in some of the uncompressed signal. That's another good way to sort of retain some of that original level coming through while still holding it down. So you might compress like three or four dB, but then you're really only blending it in, you know, 60, 70 percent. I don't know, something like that. So that's the first thing, the master bus. I do think it's very helpful to put some type of compression somewhere on that master path, whether it's either on all the music or on everything. That can really help a mix gel. Another thing that I'm big into that uh, not everybody's really into, but I really love doing it is side chaining things. So I love side chaining kick into bass, meaning the kick drum turns down the bass hits. It's like the old EDM trick, except really subtle. Okay. It's not doing that pumping thing. It's very subtle. It's only compressing the bass, maybe three dB, two to two to five dB, you know, depending just enough to allow that uh, kick and bass to work together. But I also like side chaining, say lead vocal into other mid-range cluttering elements. Maybe it's a guitar or a synth. And so I'll use a plugin like a FabFilter Pro MB and I'll set a mid-range band that's maybe from 400 hertz to 2K, very much in sort of the vocal region. And when the vocal sings, it turns down that band on my synths or on my guitars. There's a nice sort of interplay that happens there where it, it still will keep some of the fundamental notes in there, but it will it will leave a little bit more room for the vocal and it will act almost as like, you know, if you, you've ever watched like a singer songwriter perform as they're singing, they'll play a little bit quieter. And as soon as they finish a line, they'll, you know, sort of accent their guitar playing a little bit stronger and that's just sort of a natural thing that musicians do. They play softer while they're singing, and then when they stop singing, they play harder. Um, and that interplay, I can sort of fake or mimic with side chaining, you know, a vocal singing and their guitar turns down. And then when they're done singing, it automatically will turn it back up. Um, and that's, that's something I love to do with side chaining. I think that can help things gel. I also think there is an element of the tones themselves have to gel really well. Like people will ask me a lot about reverbs, you know, using reverbs to gel things and whatnot. Um, and yes, that can help. But I think a big part of it comes from just picking the right tones. Again, I always look back to the very beginning of the chain. It's usually, you know, because I've said it before, like in theory, if everything is recorded, you know, quote, perfectly, Mixing doesn't really need to exist. In theory, it doesn't. Now, obviously, we use mixing for a myriad of reasons. I mean, to make things more aggressive, more interesting, uh, you know, have effects on purpose that's like a noticeable effect, something that's not real, right? I'm not advocating that mixes always have to sound realistic. I'm just saying that in theory, a mix doesn't need reverb to gel. It doesn't need side chaining to gel. 
in theory, these things are all just little tricks to help us get there and, and, and help blend things together. So I really think, you know, for example, if you've got a harsher upper mid range sounding vocalist, that's really aggressive in those upper mids. And you also have really harsh upper mid range guitar sounds those are naturally going to fight and therefore not gel. Now, if they're complementary, then they will each give the other a place for the other to sit. All this being said, there is a fine line between separation and gel. Like, we want to achieve separation and clarity and be able to hear all the things in a mix, but if we have too much, then it doesn't gel again. <laughs> so... It's tough, you know, that it, 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 again, this is kind of like one of those questions, like how to mix. Achieving the gel is part of the challenge, but hopefully those will give you some, some things to consider, some things to think about and, and ask yourself when you're listening through to your tracks, are these tones working? Um, you know, what can I do to, to create enough separation where things um, are heard and audible, but yet leave enough room where these things can blend together nicely and coexist and not uh, not be fighting or not be uh, poking out too much. All right, number five. Do you have any tips on getting the vocal to sit in the mix? So I have done shows about this topic and my opinion has not changed on the matter. And there's a reason why I do what I do. And uh, my belief is that there isn't a secret to getting the vocal to sit in the mix. I think the mix has to fit around the vocal. The way that I've put it in many places before is it's not the job of the vocal to sit in the mix. It's the job of the mix to give the vocal a place to sit. Which is why I start the mix with the vocal. I try to get the vocal sounding really good and compelling and controlled and not harsh and not, you know, too thin, not too fat. I try to get that pretty close early, early on in the song. Because how else are you supposed to know that it will have a place unless you've defined what that place is? For example, if you're working on a mix where the vocal is really small, like let's say it's a higher pitch singer that's singing higher and more aggressively, and it doesn't have a lot of low end and maybe doesn't even have tons of top end. It's more just like a mid-range force that's, you know, pummeling through the speakers. And you know, okay, I need to put a lot of compression on this to control it, you know, because it's really aggressive. Once you kind of define how big that is, you can then say, well, I'm thinking of almost a singer like Dave Grohl, right? Like really aggressive mid-range, loud, uh, but not tons of low end on the voice. And, you know, not necessarily super like bright and perfect and clear like a pop vocal. Um, it's really just like this mid-range just aggression. But once you sort of define that and you say this sounds great for the vocal, it, it's capturing the vibe of the vocal. It is what it is. Then you can make actual distinction around the other instruments and know that you're giving you're doing something to a sound for a reason. You know, if you cut a certain frequency on guitars, you can know, well, I did that because it's getting in the way of the vocal. But to just guess that ahead of time, to me, is much harder. Because if you're mixing a song and you're like, 
and then you slap in the vocal and you're like, well, now, now there's no room for it. And my guitars are fighting it. And now I'm going to have to EQ my guitars differently. And now I'm going to, you know, you end up backtracking. To me, that's another trick about saving mixes, uh, saving time in a mix is not allowing yourself to essentially screw yourself by doing something by a guess. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I get my vocal right early and then I'll bring in the drums and I, drums also can take up a lot of space. And so I have to kind of say, how can I get my drums to speak and sound good and sound big and sound, you know, whatever they need to sound like without taking away from the vocal. And that defines my main rhythm and my main melody. And then the bass, I kind of tuck in where it can fit with those drums. You know, sometimes it's going to be a little subby. Sometimes it's going to have a little more mids. Sometimes there's going to be distortion. But again, the bass and the vocal generally don't fight. You know, they're, they're such a different region. They usually don't fight each other. And they usually, the vocal doesn't necessarily usually fight the drums. Sometimes it can fight the drums in terms of, uh, sort of mid-range presence or room sound or, or snare ring or something like that where that mid-range is fighting with the vocal. But uh, in general, it, it, those three things are super important and you have to get them right. And everything else you can fit around it. So I, I really do believe in getting the vocal right early. I will say, however, there are some things that you can do. I think the use of effects on a vocal is really important and you have to take it seriously because many many mixes that i do the vocal might have five or six effects on it but they're all subtle maybe one of them only comes on for a certain verse maybe one of them is on the whole song to me it's a, it's a series of effects that each have a function sometimes it's there to define a vibe like it's a delay or something that helps define the vibe and I don't necessarily need it for glue or for gel or for helping it sit in the mix. It's there strictly to accomplish a vibe. Other times I'm using a reverb or a delay that's really subtle, just enough to make it not sound like we're listening to a vocal from three inches away like it was recorded. You know, you're trying to define the space of the singer and say, okay, I know we recorded it from just a handful of inches away from the microphone, but I need to create the illusion that they're, you know, not that awkwardly close. But other times you do want to create the illusion that they're that close. And so for that, you might end up doing very subtle effects. But the question of can you ever get away with no effects on a vocal, meaning just totally dry? It happens sometimes, but I would say it's pretty rare. It is pretty rare for me to have absolutely nothing on a vocal in terms of reverb or delay, unless it's something like perhaps punk rock or metal. I don't find myself using much effects there, if any. Um, but even then, sometimes just a little bit of slap delay or a little bit of room reverb can just, I mean, the tiniest amount can just tie it to the track and make it sound less awkward, and there you go. Um, I don't believe in the idea of just adding effects so that it doesn't feel dry, if that makes sense. There, to me, the effects have to have a purpose, and I know a lot of singers are really bothered by their vocal sounding dry, and so they'll say, like, put some reverb on it. But to me, that 
that doesn't really accomplish that's not enough. That's not deep enough. You know what I mean? Like to me, the effect needs to have a purpose and it doesn't, it's not just like, oh, well, I don't like the sound of my dry vocal, put, put a little reverb on it. It's like, that's not really going deep enough. Like what effects can we put on this vocal or effect that not only just help you feel less awkward about your voice and insecure, but that actually will help it tie to the track, even if it's really subtle. Um, because I believe if the vocal is strong, if the performance is good, and it was recorded well, it shouldn't really need much to to feel like it belongs. But sometimes the smallest amount of reverb, you know, a medium length, you know, one to two second reverb, usually pretty dark, um, usually with a pre-delay, the tiniest little amount of that can, can really uh, help solidify a vocal to a track and what I like to call define the back wall. It shows that it tells your brain, okay, the vocalist is close to me and that's the back wall. But otherwise, if it's just a vocal, like a dry vocal, it can feel kind of disembodied. It can feel like, well, the vocal's right next to me, but what space am I in? What What's the context for this vocal? Other times, on a lot of, for example, like Nora Jones records, those vocals are very, very dry. And if there are effects, they're very subtle. But the voice is so compelling and the vibe of the record is often like that feels like home record. Like that vibe is very close and intimate. I mean, it's literally called feels like home. Like it's not supposed to feels like stadium. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> um, it's it feels like home. That's the point. I mean, it, it all connects with the vibe of the record, the vibe of the songs. And so many, many times um, they'll get away with like, what sounds like almost a bone dry vocal. And there might be the tiniest bit of reverb in there just to sort of, again, define that back wall. But again, I, I truly believe it starts with getting that vocal right early and then make making those decisions around it and giving it always referencing back to it. So usually what I'll do is I'll 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 start with the vocal and then there's a period of time in the middle of the mix where I have the vocal muted where I'm just sort of working on the detail things, but I've already sort of established this is the vocal, this is how big it needs to be, this is the sort of frequency range it's occupying and then I can mute it and kind of ignore it for a little while. I bring it back in to check it. And then for the last, I would say it's like one third, one third and one third. So like the beginning third of the mix, it's in there, the middle third, it's muted. And then the end it's in again. And it has to be, it really has to be. You can't just unmute it at the very end and print mix, you know? So hopefully that will give you some considerations and uh, lead you on the path to getting your vocals to feel better in the mix. Okay, number six, what are your thoughts on the kick and bass relationship? Who wins? All right, this is a common question that you'll see all over the internet. You'll see it in books, you'll see it in podcasts, you'll see it in you know, YouTube channels where we talk about the kick-bass relationship. And to me, I've never really struggled getting the kick and bass to coexist. I don't know if, I mean, maybe if somebody listens to my mixes, they might be like, oh yeah, well, your, your low end sounds like crap. Uh, <laughs> so that's, I, I suppose that's possible. Um, but I, I never have felt that the kick-bass relationship is a frequency war. A lot of people talk about like cutting out some 60 hertz on a bass, and, and, and I probably used to do that too, but... 
But at least for the last handful of years, I, I don't think that the kick bass war is a frequency war. I believe it's more of a dynamic war that starts from good playing technique and not having uh, the kick and bass be sloppily played. Because if those are played really well, they naturally fit together pretty well. But then sometimes you get this sort of fighting for who's winning the low end. If the kick drum hits and then the bass hits together, even if like rhythmically it's tight, sometimes like neither of them feel big. So for me, one of the things that really helps is something I've already mentioned, which is side chaining the kick and bass. I do that a lot, even if really subtly, even if just a dB or two, I find that having that initial transient coming from the kick drum and then dipping that on the bass is really, really beneficial. Even, like I said, super subtly, even in a really chill mix, it can really help to define the kick's function, which is for a rhythmic pulse, and the bass's function, which is for a sustained tone. Now, of course, when you're dealing with something like slap bass, um, you have a little bit of a different war going on. I'll admit that. But a lot of times, if the band has a slap bass, that kick drum is usually really short and punchy, and the bass is much busier and already doesn't have a problem standing out um, because the tone is generally brighter, it's more aggressive. Um, you know, obviously slapping bass like uh, really is much more aggressive than like using your fingers and playing a bass tone-wise. So I just don't seem to find that struggle is really that problematic for me. I will sidechain my kick into the bass compressor and uh, that will turn down the bass when the kick hits. But I also find that the master bus compressor will help with that because again, it's a similar function. When the kick drum hits, the whole song turns down a little bit. Again, just a little bit. And it's not turning down, I mean, more than a dB or so, especially if you're using something with an automatic release, it doesn't, you know, just turn down the compressor and then release all the way back again. You know, it, it has like a multi-stage release to the compressor. Of course, if you use a fast fixed release, like on the SSL, like it's got like a hundred milliseconds, it will try to push back the whole time all the way back to zero dB of gain reduction. But the auto mode does not. The auto mode does not immediately return. It has a multi-stage release that um, is program dependent. So my point being, um, try not to focus on pulling down frequencies on the bass to give the kick drum room to sit. Because again, when you're that low, when you're down in the 50, 60, 70 hertz region, on a bass guitar, you're turning down notes. You're turning down specific notes, like 55 hertz is an A. And so if you just turn down 55 hertz, because your kick drum is tuned to 55 hertz, well, every time there's an, an A note, it will be quieter. And that's not really a solution. Like to me, I try to stay really broad and wide on bass EQ because I don't want to start turning down notes. Now, of course, when you get into the upper frequencies in the mid-range, it, the the note spacing gets tighter. For example, like between 55 and 110, that's an octave, so that's an A. But then the next one would be 220 and then 440. So that spacing is much, much, much different. Uh, the, the notes are all crammed in there. And if you turn down like 400 hertz, 
with a, you know, medium cue, you're really turning down a lot of different notes. But if you turn down 55 hertz, you're kind of mostly turning down A. You know what I mean? If you look at a frequency graph, I think you'll understand what I'm what I'm saying <laughs> um, because the because of the logarithmic nature of it. So I don't really use narrow cues down there on the bass. I try to keep it all to shelves, and most of my work on the bass comes in the low mids and, and mids, and the the lows I just kind of define as like this is how big I want it by turning it up a certain amount. Another thing that's really important when it comes to the kick and bass relationship, especially when it pertains to bass, but also with kick, is the phase of the low end. You really need to make sure that your kick and bass individually sound great and you're not getting cancellation from, say, uh, kick inside and kick outside mics. Um, that needs to be solid. Like, your kick sound needs to be solid. And your bass guitar sound, if you have a DI and an amp, that relationship needs to be solid. But then also... If you solo up a kick, like let's say your kick group like that has your kick in and out and your bass group that has your bass DI and bass amp, I always try to check the phase between those two as well. And I might flip the bass to enhance the relationship of those two together. Now, a lot of times it makes almost no difference because phase and that sort of relationship is frequency dependent, so it depends on the note. But if the kick drum has a really prominent note to it, like if the kick drum is um, has a real subby, like mm, like a like an actual tone that comes through, and the song is in that key, you have to make sure that the bass and that tone of the kick drum are not canceling. Um, so it's really important to check that, to check that those two are working together. And then from there, the side chaining helps to make sure the transient of the kick drum comes through and the sustain of the bass is heard and they can coexist and both be loud and both be heard and each is accomplishing their function. So yeah, hopefully that is helpful. What are your thoughts on the master bus? What is okay? What's not okay? What's on your master bus? So we've talked about this a little bit already, but for me, I try to keep my master bus really subtle. I purposely try to make the EQ moves very, very slight, a dB or two maximum. I really try to, to not tackle it all from the master bus. Right now, I am using the UAD Chandler curve bender EQ in midside. I really do like that on the master bus. And I think I'm boosting a dB on it as a high shelf and then boosting like a half dB on the side channel to give my mix bus a little bit more width. I think that's it, really. I don't think I'm doing any other EQ on there. Just a little bit of top end. And then I use a compressor of some kind, usually right after. And often it's the SSL, but sometimes it's uh, the Glue by Cytomic. I do love that plugin. Sometimes it's uh, one of the many Fairchild plugins out there, either from Waves or from UAD. Sometimes I actually really like the Novatron plugin on the Master Bus. You have to, you know, work with it a little bit. The settings are a little hard to, to a little harder to work with, I find, but it's still a great sounding compressor plugin, Novatron from UBK. I also like sometimes if I really want something super clean, I love the Fab Filter compressor for for that if I need a really really clean master bus. I mean there's so many things that work again and I'm only compressing a couple of dB in the rarest of circumstances am I doing 3 4 dB of compression usually it's like 1 or 2 
and it maybe hits like two and a half or three at the biggest section of the song, maybe. But for the majority of the song, it might be a dB, you know, or two. To me, that's just a subtle amount of glue. That's the function of that processor. It's just subtly kind of gluing everything together, not using it for a bunch of tone or or control even per se. It's really just to help gel the mix. And then after that, I usually use some sort of tape saturation plug-in in most situations unless I want it to be super clean. Um, my favorite at the moment is the UAD Ampex. I really, really love that plugin. It does take a lot of tweaking to get something that is, uh, like all the EQ switches and the tape formulas and all that stuff is really sensitive. You really have to be careful with it and you have to watch it. That's the one thing I don't like about it. I used the Slate virtual tape machines for years and... The problem I always had with it was I felt like it just never really enhanced the glue of my mix. And I liked the tone it imparted, but it just didn't seem to enhance that sort of gel and glue in the way that tape does. And the UAD Ampex, I feel like, does a much better job at that. And I don't crush it or anything. I don't, I don't run it super hot. I purposely do it pretty subtly. I just want, again, a little bit of glue, a little bit of that saturation, a little bit of that character just to kind of finalize and top it off. And, and again, I keep it pretty subtle. I purposely don't like run it in the red. I don't, I don't even, I really try not to even run it at zero in terms of the gain staging, you know, the, the VU meters. I, I really want it pretty subtle. But again, you have to be careful with that plugin because there's so many things to tweak. There's so many things like the crosstalk and the noise and the transformer and uh, all the EQ switches and the different formulas of tape and the calibrations and the inches per second. I mean, you have to get really, really picky with it. And the way that I tend to do it is I will run frequency sweeps through it and just to ensure that I'm not like boosting 10K by 5 dB or something uh, because you can't see it. You know, you can't see what it's really doing. So I, I'm too paranoid with that. So I have to run frequency sweeps through it and see what kind of curve that I'm creating. Because if you turn it on and it's got a bunch of low end and high end, initially, of course, you're going to say like, oh man, Man, this sounds great, but that's not the sort of thing I'm going for on my master bus. I generally want my master bus to be fairly transparent, and I don't want it to change the tone very much. I really just want it to help um, brighten up a little bit and glue. That's kind of my main goal with the master bus, because I know I'm probably going to end up brightening up a lot of things. It's just kind of the way things are these days. Mixes need to be kind of bright. That's the sound that people have been used to for I mean, really almost like 20 years. I mean, really starting in the 80s is when stuff started to get kind of noticeably brighter. And, you know, 20, 30 years of like slow brightening, it's just, it's a fact and it's frustrating, but it's a fact. Um, so I add a little bit of top end, I add a little bit of compression to glue, and I add a little bit of saturation to glue, and that's really what I'm what I'm using it for. And like I said, when I talked about glue and gel and all that, um, I... I may sometimes put the uh, compressor on just the music, uh, but I pretty much always will leave the saturation on the master as the last plugin. 
Um, like I said, I don't do any limiting on the master bus and, um, I will often keep a limiter plugin on, but it will be bypassed or not doing anything. I just use it for convenience if I need to, uh, you know, turn it on and, and, and render a mix that's louder for the client. Cause like I said, I do mix with quite a bit of headroom. And so that can be annoying to send a client a mix and it's real quiet and they've got to crank up their, you know, stereo or whatever. I don't advise using limiting on the master bus and I don't advise using a bunch of stereo widening tools on the master bus. I do use a little bit of midside, but again, it's like half a dB of midside. It's very subtle um, widening. I don't advise going crazy with it. it. It really can kind of mislead you and mess up your mix in a lot of ways. And, and you'll fight it, I find. You know, if you want something to truly be like on the left or truly be on the right, you can sometimes get in these weird little battles with the stereo image because of doing too much stereo widening. So if I do need to use stereo wideners for, for whatever reason, I'll put it on individual elements like a synth or maybe if I want the guitars super wide or something, but I try not to put it on the master bus ever. Um, I used to for, for probably a solid year. I used uh, I used a stereo widener on my master bus and I just kind of got tired of it. I got tired of, fighting it and I got tired of the uh, sort of weird phasey thing that it would do. So now I don't do it. Anyway, hopefully that is uh, helpful and enlightening. Number eight, why might you use a delay over a reverb or vice versa? What are your primary functions for delays and reverbs? So I get this question fairly often about why I like delays over reverbs or why I might use a reverb. When When should I use a reverb over a you know, and again, there's no rules here. I can't tell you when to use a reverb versus a delay. You know, people are act, act, acting almost as if there's like some, and don't get me wrong, I, you kind of have to blame the marketing for it, but people act like there's some secret that people know that they don't. And there's not, like there's just not. Um, there's not a method that works. And, and people sometimes get frustrated at me for telling them that because they think that I'm like trying to hold out on them and you know but but think about it if there was like a definitive way if there was a good definitive answer we'd probably all know it it would have been published it would have been something that is common knowledge if it really was that simple but it's not it's art i mean it's it doesn't confuse anybody when you look at people's pedal boards and they're using different reverb pedals or distortion pedals or whatever. And it's like, oh, well, they're using that because they like it and it fits with what they want to do. And it allows them to get the sounds they want to get. Nobody questions that. But suddenly when it comes to mixing, it's like, well, well, why would you, why would you do that instead of that? And, and, and are you, is there something I'm missing? You know what I mean? It's like, no, I, it's cause I liked it and I thought it sounded good. I mean, it's, it really is that simple and you just have to experiment and try things. So with that sort of rant preface out of the way, why might I use a delay over reverb? So I love delays because they can be a lot more subtle than reverbs. They can be quick. They can blend into a track. They can help you add dimension and space to a sound by using short delays and slapback delays in a way that prevents that sort of awkward dry feeling of, you know, hey, we mic'd this from two inches away and I'm supposed to believe that it's in the room. It can help prevent that without really sounding like just a blur of decay. I, 
I find it pretty easy to get a great vocal sound with just a little bit of slap, slap delay and a subtle bit of reverb. That's a really common move for me is like the tiniest little amount of a dark single slap, slap delay. And that's anywhere from, you know, 60 to 150 milliseconds, something like that. Just a single slap, usually kind of dark, usually mono, sometimes stereo. Sometimes I'll do a slightly different slap on the left and the right, maybe like 90 and 110 or 100 and 120 or 120 and 150 on the left side and the right side. And again, it can be dark and it can be one slap, but it's just enough to add some dimension and to essentially give your brain uh, delay cues as if you're in a room. Like if you're in a room, the only reason that, you're a, that your brain knows somebody is across the room is because of the delay cues and the reverb in the room. And again, what is reverb? A bunch of delays. That's really all it is. And so all these delays and all of these reflections combine and there's so many of them that it creates a continuous tail, um, very similar to the way that in a film, there's actually, you know, still shots, say like 24 frames per second. That's 24 pictures playing in a row. And that to our eye appears as continuous footage, but it's really separate photos just playing at a certain speed where our eyes can no longer detect discrete images. The same is true with reverb. It's really just tons of reflections to the point where our ears can no longer discern discrete echoes. We, we discern it as a tail, as a reverb sound. It's the same, the same philosophy. So reverbs are, are really just a series of complicated delays. And some people will add you know, three or four different delays to a vocal, like maybe a slap delay and then like a, a really kind of quick, like 16th note, like da 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 you know? And then maybe they'll add like a quarter note and then maybe they'll add like a big wide eighth note delay. And, and that series of four delays or whatever can combine to sound something like a reverb, but with rhythmic elements to it. That's another cool thing about delay is that it can, it can blend into a track by being rhythmic. You know, you can get the effect of the space without it, you know, and it will still pulse in time and it will blend into the track a little bit easier than a reverb. I'm sure some of you have struggled with the fact that when you're mixing something, sometimes you'll you'll turn up the reverb to where it sounds good and then you'll put it in the track and you and the reverb disappears. And then you just keep turning up the reverb and the point when you hear it, when it sounds like oh man, I can finally hear the reverb. It sounds good. But then you solo it and you're like, oh my God, that's so much reverb. <laughs> um, that's common, okay? And that's one of the things that is frustrating about reverb is that it's it takes up a lot of space and to be heard, sometimes it's tricky because it just kind of blends in and kind of washes stuff out. So I find that a combination of reverbs and delays is really helpful for me. On a lot of sort of indie rock records, it's a combination of some really washy reverbs as well as some slap delays, some like echoplex or a space echo type delays um, that are real dark and slappy and quick. Sometimes a little bit of spring reverb can be cool. Spring reverb is neat because it's it's a little bit more mid-range focused and kind of nasally sounding and can stick out of a track a little bit better than like a big, beautiful plate reverb, which sort of just like blends and melts into the track. 
I do find that certain reverbs blend into a track better, but similar to what I talked about with vocal, if the reverb is a priority for you, say for example, you're working with a band and the vocal effects, like having a bunch of vocal effects is really a priority for them. You should kind of decide that early and adjust your mix to work around it. You know what I mean? Like if if you get that vocal right and you know this person likes a bunch of vocal effects and they're going to want a bunch of reverb on their vocal, you have to mix with that in mind. And arguably you should put that reverb on early and mix knowing that that's there. Because if you don't, you're not going to leave yourself room for it. Your brain is going to want to fill up that mix with other stuff only to realize you don't have enough room for it. So, you know, when might I choose one over the other? When it sounds better or worse. It's really that simple. It, you, you just have to experiment. You have to try different types of reverbs, different types of delays, short delays, timed delays, as well as uh, not timed delays, meaning like synced to the BPM and others not. Um, it's much easier to, like a delay will stand out much, much more if it's not in time. But sometimes you want it to blend in. Sometimes you want it to not stand out. you got to try both, and you have to see what works. For me, this is one of the reasons I love having a template, because the template that I have created and modified over the years, I start with like 11 delays and 11 reverbs, something like that. I think that's my latest count. And they're all delays and reverbs that I like, that are tweakable, that I can adjust, you know, okay, this is a, a room, a room reverb, uh, but it's, you know, I can make it shorter or longer depending on what the song needs. This is a slap delay. Maybe I can, you know, I'll adjust how bright it is or how long it is or how many repeats there are, but they're all things that I can quickly go to and try things with, you know, it's not just like I'm pulling up something from scratch and saying, what in the world am I going to do for vocal effects? I quickly have a little library of things that will get me at least in a ballpark, you know? So if I think, okay, maybe let's try a chamber reverb on this vocal and I'll send it to the chamber and the chamber reverb strip that I've got. And then I think, okay, well, that sounds pretty cool, but it's a little bright, so I might darken it a little and it's a little bit uh, too long, so I might shorten it. I mean, that whole thing took me... 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and I'm there. You know what I mean? I don't have to sit there and find a reverb plugin that has a chamber sound I like, because I've already done that. I don't have to tweak it to like a good sort of middle ground, which I've already done. I pretty much just send to the chamber and tweak. I really highly advise setting up, a, setting up good templates for yourself and just spending some time with effects and really kind of learning what they can do, what they can't do, what you like, what you don't. For me, most of my effects work comes from four or five different reverb plugins and Soundtoys Echo Boy for delays. I use Echo Boy for almost every type of delay that I could need. It's great. It's a great delay plugin. There are lots of great delay plugins out there, but that's one of my favorites. Um, I also really like H-Delay from Waves. That's a cool plugin. Does some really cool things. So yeah, hopefully that gives you some, some insight into my thoughts on delays and reverbs and when I might use one or the other. Okay, here is a hotly debated issue. Uh, number nine, do you put EQ before or after compression? Why or why not? 
So this to me is a, a bit of a silly one that people spend so much time debating and like, it's such a non-issue really. Like both of them work. I'll just clarify that both EQ before and after work. And I do both. And it just depends on what works better in a given situation. Uh, for example, I record with a lot of Neve style preamps, which means the EQ is right there. So by necessity, I have to do the EQ before the compression. There's a good argument to be made for you don't want to compress something until it sounds basically how you want it to sound because the compressor will sort of exaggerate some of those features. You know, compressors will bring out a lot of detail because they're turning down loud stuff and, you know, by contrast, they're turning up the quiet stuff and therefore it will bring out detail. And so if the sound that you have is not really the sound you want, you don't really want to compress it so the e, you know you EQ on the preamp, so it can make sense at first to say, oh, you should EQ before you compress. And in a lot of cases, that's true. But at the same time, there are times when, depending on the EQ moves you make, you don't want to put that into the compressor because you don't want the compressor to be triggered by that change. For example, if you're recording acoustic guitar in a, in a room and you have a little bit of air conditioner rumble, I don't think it's a good idea to compress that before EQing it because that rumble could theoretically trigger that compressor in a way that it's not, you know, it's not going to be that way. Another good example of this would be hi-hat. If you want to compress your hi-hat and you don't high-pass it before, the compressor is going to be triggered by the snare drum and the bleed, right? It makes way more sense to high-pass all of that stuff out and maybe even EQ the hi-hat a little bit too bright so that the compressor can be triggered correctly by the hi-hat, even if you then need to darken it up after. So that's a good argument for why you should do EQ before compression. However, there are situations such as when you're adding low-end that you don't want the compressor to be triggered by all of this low end. Instead, you want it to be triggered by these higher transients, um, you know, in the upper mid range to be actually making the compression action happen. And so it's better to trigger the compressor from that and then add your low end afterward. So I would say it kind of follows a bit of my philosophy that I've uh, talked about in the past of like, it's a little better to do the corrective EQ first. And, you know, if you're going to high pass out rumble and noise and stuff like that, do that first. Don't confuse your compressor. And especially if, you know, if you've got a sound that really has a problem, like you've got a big ring somewhere in the mid range, like a weird resonance, um, or you've got like some harshness at 3K or something like that, you don't necessarily want that to trigger your compressor. Um, so I try to do corrective stuff early. And then, and that's kind of how I use the uh, EQ while tracking. I'm not using it for like, you know, these drastic changes. I just, oh, this sounds a little dark. I might add a little bit of top end or this is a little too fat. I might pull out some low end. Like I just do it for basic little corrective things. Now, again, in the analog world, there's not really many EQs that can do tight cues and that type of corrective EQ. So for example, if I'm using a compressor in the analog domain, chances are I'm going to put a high pass on what I send to it. Even if that's at 40, 50 hertz, pretty low, 
I just don't want that stuff to trigger the compressor. I especially will do that on a vocal. Uh, that's one of the only EQ moves I pretty much always do on the way in is uh, put a high pass on the vocal. And I'll put it, again, pretty low, 50 hertz, 60 hertz, something like that. But it's just enough to prevent any rumble or potential air blasts that can excite a microphone diaphragm from triggering a compressor in a weird way. Because ultimately, that's not what we're trying to trigger the compressor with, right? You have to think about it in terms of what is the compressor detecting and what is that detector circuit doing? Now, on a plugin or a processor like the Distressor, you have some various detector options. You can put the high-pass filter on it so it ignores low frequencies. So you can use it as a compressor, and it will essentially pretend that the signal coming in is high-passed. Um, and it will react accordingly. But it also has the high-mid emphasis, so it will be more sensitive in that high-mid region and be more sensitive to transients in that region. Compressors like the API 2500 also have detector mod modifying you know, buttons with thrust circuit. There, there are lots of compressors that have that, but many compressors out there like 1176 or LA2, they kind of have fixed detector circuits that just are set and they do what they do. So just be aware of that. A lot of it depends on what you're doing with the compressor and what you want the compressor to see or what you want the compressor to ignore. That will depend on whether I EQ before or after. But a lot of times, technically speaking, I'm doing both. You know, it, it, I'm, I might EQ a little bit while tracking and then I might compress a little bit while tracking and then maybe I'll EQ a little bit and then I'll maybe compress a little bit. I mean, I, I just, people stress about it. Like it's the secret and why some people's mixes are better than others. I, it's really just not, you know what I mean? It's, it's such a minimal thing. It's a detail that, yeah, you can get better results. I think if you, if you recognize it and understand what you're doing as you're doing it, like the hi-hat thing, like if you want to control your hi-hat and you put a compressor on it and you don't high-pass it, it'll it'll be triggered by the bleed of the snare and the kick and stuff. That's just that's just a good habit, I think, to get into is thinking about it, you know, like that. Thinking, oh, well, I probably should high-pass it now. If I'm if I want to compress it, I want to high-pass it. Or use a compressor with a detector that is more sensitive in the highs and not sensitive in the lows because otherwise it's going to be triggering that compressor improperly. Unless you want it to be triggered by the bleed, in which case you would purposely not high-pat. You know what I mean? Like, my point is, both of them work. Both of them are fine. Um, there's not one that's better than the other. It's just a matter of what you're trying to do with it. So, like most things in, in the audio world, it's strange to me how many questions are asked in this sort of, they almost implies that one way is the better way or one way is like what the pros do and, and the non-pros don't do that. And like, this is the secret that they understand and we don't. Like, there are so few things that are like that in the audio world. I mean, especially today with all the access to information we have, I just don't think there are many secrets left. Like, you know what I mean? Like things that we, I think one of the last like quote, great secrets of the audio world was saturation that we never really understood it until, you know, we started recognizing, 
oh, the pros are still using their analog consoles and their analog gear. Why do the plugins not sound very good? And then we started thinking, but the plugins have better specs technically. Like, shouldn't they sound better? And then we started thinking, well, actually, maybe the distortion from the analog gear is helping the glue. And maybe the little bit of, you know, saturation on the tubes or on the transformers is actually helping the mix glue better. And then we started making analog processors and tube mics and stuff started getting popular again and and recreations of old gear and clones and all this started getting popular again. And we started to realize, oh my gosh, like the quote imperfect gear was actually helping aid the sound that we hear in our heads. It was getting them closer and tape and all that stuff. Like all these quote imperfect technologies were actually helping glue things. To me, that was the last big secret of the audio world that we've kind of been on the path of figuring out and discovering for the last 20 years. Um, really like we, we've kind of been on that path already, but otherwise I don't think there's any, like, I remember people would freak out about things like the, uh, what was it? The Alesis master link and the finalizer from SPL and all this, like, is that the secret to getting that radio ready mix? And people thought that these devices, these like digital devices were somehow the secret to getting that finished mix sound, this random like rack processor or this random, you know, CD authoring device. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, and it's, it's crazy. Like, no, no, they're not. Like, there's not these big secrets that are being hidden from you. Uh, I mean, if you really don't believe me, go get a subscription to Mix with the Masters. You can see what these masters do. And they all do it slightly differently. They all use some similar plugins, but similar and similar hardware pieces, but they all have different ways of doing it. They all use different master bus stuff. Some of them use nothing. Some of them use a ton of stuff on the master. And they all have good results. Like, that's one of the best things that I learned from having a mix with the master subscription is like all these people just go with their gut and they just do it how they do it and they figured out a system that works for them and some of the things they explain they just make me laugh because they'll be like I would ne you know I'll see something they do and I'll think I would never do that and sometimes even in the moment I think that sounds terrible but by the end of the mix their process it works and they create something that works for them and then you'll watch another video and it's completely opposite like uh, CLA, for example, is really aggressive with his EQ and compression, but then you'll watch somebody else like Michael Brower or someone, he's like, is the compressor even moving? Are they even doing any EQ? What's happening? You can barely see anything going on. They're doing more saturation tools and then they're using more like parallel stuff, but they both get a great result at the end of all of it. And it's just, it's really enlightening to see that all of these people do it differently and none of them are wrong. It's more about that they have discovered ways that work for them that help get them the result they want. And that's, to me, one of the biggest thing that separates, uh, one of the biggest things that separates the amateur from the pros is that the pros have taken the time and spent years developing systems that work for them, that help them get the results that they hear in their head and that get results that the client wants and that get results that, that sound professional and sound top-notch. 
and based on how a person hears things, how they they respond to EQ moves and how they respond to compression, you have to come up with systems that get you what you want because everybody will process those things differently. It's almost how I look at it is like if you hand somebody a guitar, what's the first thing they're going to play? Some people might go for a big E chord. Some people might go for a G chord. Some people might finger pick. Some people might go for something funky and, you know, with bar chords. I almost look at that like mixing. Like every single mixer, when they sit down at the desk, the way that they hear sounds and process sounds and like the way that their brain wants to expect things coming out of the speakers is going to be a little bit different. And there's no way for us to know what that is for other people. So the process almost has to look different for everybody because there are certain things that people will try for years and they'll think, how come I can't get results? And it's like, well, because you're just copying somebody else. And that's not really, you're just thinking, well, they got it to work. I should be able to get it to work too. Maybe not. I mean, like I said, from watching some of those Mix of the Masters videos, I think I could never mix that way. That is crazy to me. But then other people would see it and say, oh man, that's something I got to try. That makes way more sense to me. So that's just all goes to say, everybody's going to be a little different. And I challenge you to really find creative solutions to the problems that you have. I know this is, man, I'm really ranting on the EQ and compression thing, but um, this really inspired me to bring this point up, which is like, everybody's going to do it differently. And I challenge you to find out systems that work for you for drum compression and for EQing and for how to get enough brightness out of vocals and how to get effects that sound right to you and what to do on your master bus and how to get your kick and bass to gel and all of these things, like all of these problems we've talked about, like on this episode, especially like come up with creative so solutions that work for you. The things that I do, that's just how they work for me. They might not work for you. Side chaining stuff, that might sound like crap to you. That's okay. Don't just do it because I say I do it. Don't just do it because it works for me. If it, But definitely try it. And then if it doesn't work or if you're like, eh, I don't know, doesn't really sound like how I thought it would sound, maybe try something else. Anyway, long answer all to say EQ before or after compression, both. Okay, so what's the deal with stereo image? Do you still pan LCR? Do you still use the 50-50 positions? What about stereo wideners? What about panning? What about mono? So, uh, my opinions on this have changed a little bit over the years. Um, for the longest time, I did LCR pretty strict mixing, where I mixed only with left, center, and right. Then there was a time when I did uh, left, center, right, plus 50-50, uh, the, the two spots in the middle. And for the most part, I still do that. I still do try to limit the number of pan spots that I use because I think it just makes decisions easier. It makes arrangement decisions make more sense because you say, listen, I only have these number of spots. And uh, so I can't really, you can't just fit everything up in this mix. You have to decide who wins, who's got priority. So I still do try to stick to LCR, meaning left, 100% left, 100% right, and center, plus the 50-50 pan spots. And really, not much goes in the 50-50 spots. It might be toms and backing vocals. Otherwise, nothing. But 
I will still sometimes use stereo wideners or stereo narrowers on things like piano um, to make things a little bit wider or a little bit narrower. So yes, they are panned hard left and right, but then I might narrow them or widen them with uh, a stereo widening plugin. So that's kind of not the same thing. I will do mid-side EQ, which is kind of, again, bending the rules of panning a little bit. I do like mid-side EQ. I Again, I try to stay away from too much stereo widening and, and too many mid-side tricks because you can get kind of weird and phasey. But maybe on like one sound in the mix, I will make it ultra wide. Maybe a pad or something, I'll make it ultra wide. In terms of dealing with the stereo image, man, it really does depend on what you've got to work with. There are certain tracks you get that have drums, bass, guitar, guitar, vocal. And there's really only a couple (laughs) places things could go. You know what I mean? It's like... Well, uh, drums are going to go mostly up the middle other than overheads um, and room mics and toms. Bass is probably going to be mono. Vocal is going to be mono and guitars left and right. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you, it's just right in front of your face. Like there's only so many places I could put these. But then if you're dealing with a really dense mix with three or four synth tracks and five or six guitar tracks and 10 backing vocals, well, then what? From there, I find it's just a game of experimenting with who wins the width. You know, is it better to have the guitars wider or the synths wider or the backing vocals wider? I find that the thing that has the most transient data or upper frequencies, so usually that's going to be guitars, but could be synths, that's going to sound the widest naturally and probably should win the wideness war. So if you've got like a really buzzy, attacky scent that's like, ba, 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 you know, that's that's really bright and, and pokey on the transients. Almost think like 80s, like a, some of those like Van Halen, you know, type synths, you know, there's really aggressive like pop rock synth sounds. Those can actually sound pretty wide just naturally and can take up a lot of room, but they they will just, regardless of what you do, they're going to sound wider than guitars because they just have more brightness than guitars. So the that might need to be your extra wide thing, and then your guitars might need to be hard left and right. But if that doesn't fit or they start competing, you might need to bring in those guitars to like 75-75. To me, it's it's about the spirit of that idea. It's not about... Do you really only use five pan spots, you know, LCR and 50-50? To me, it's the spirit of minimize the number of pan spots you have, not necessarily like stick to those hard, fast rules. I, You'd be surprised how many times I get questions from people where, you know, I'll do something on YouTube or I'll do on some on one of my uh, Let's Mix and Master a Song series. And people will be like astonished that they're like, well, you did this and you said you don't do that. What, what gives? Did you, why would you lie? You know? (laughs) And, and you know, it's like, they're astonished that I broke the rules. And how many times have I said it? There are no rules. There are guidelines and there are sort of frameworks that you can set for yourself. But if you say like, I mix LCR and 50, 50, and then it sounds better to you on one mix to to put the guitars at 80-80 or 75-75. 
then do it. You know, like I, (laughs) it's that simple. Like, don't feel like anything you do for yourself. Like, for example, if you say, well, I like this compressor on drums. And then one day you do a mix and that doesn't sound good to you. And you're like, well, this is the drum compressor that I use. It's my sound. I mean, no, that's total BS. Don't live your life that way. Don't mix songs that way. Don't think about it as these are the rules and these are the guidelines. You know, when I talk a lot about systems, uh, I talk a lot about frameworks and systems for yourself, like the uh, templates and master bus and this and that. That doesn't mean you're, you're assigning yourself this rigid box. It means you're assigning yourself a guideline to follow. And if you stray from that guideline, probably means you had a reason. Because in this particular situation, with this particular sound or group of sounds or particular song, sounded better to slightly modify that guideline. I don't see how that's crazy. You know what I mean? It's like if you were working on a song and uh, you decided, you know what, I really, really should sing this song in E flat instead of E. And so you tune the guitar down a half step to E flat. And it's like, but you're not in standard tuning. And it's like, no, it, it was a little easier to sing it in E flat. So I just decided to tune the guitar down a half step. It's like, it's like, but, but it's not standard. You know what I mean? It's like, Nobody cares about that. Any, you know, guitar players don't find that strange. It's like, okay, well, Jimi Hendrix tuned to E flat, so no big deal. And that's how I feel about mixing sometimes. Uh, um, you know, people, sometimes people ask me, I even had an intern ask me, they're like, why did you do that? You know, this, this, this. And I was like, because I thought it sounded good. And they're like, but, you know, I've heard that that's, that's not really necessarily a good idea. I was like, well, in a lot of cases, it, it, it probably wouldn't be a good idea. But in this situation, I, I thought it sounded good. So I did it. And it's like baffling to them. And it was like, I, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand why it's so baffling or confusing to people to, quote, break the rules. I, because, again, there are no rules to break. <laughs> so my point is, with the stereo image, I generally try to stick to as few pan spots as I can get away with. LCR 50-50, every now and then on a dense mix, I might have a 75-75 also, or I might have a 25-25 also. But I don't just randomly pan stuff around. I really try to stick to definitive spots, and I try to stick to as few as possible. In a lot of mixes, you can get away with just LCR, and that's it. And it sounds great. And you can use effects and delays and things like that to help fill in those gaps in between. Um, And I love mixing LCR, but there's also the reality that sometimes clients hate it. If you pan a guitar, I mean, I just dealt with a situation with a client recently where I panned a guitar hard right, and they were like, well, it's only in the right ear. And I'm like, yeah, it's hard right. They're like, well, what if somebody's listening without one headphone on? And I mean, to me, that's like making food and then saying, Well, it doesn't taste like crazy, crazy exaggerated. What if somebody's eating this while holding their nose? You know, it's like, so you're asking me to make mixes for people who have purposely impaired their senses and and are not experiencing it how you intended for them to experience it. It's like trying to make the colors on a film extra exaggerated so that people who walk into a theater... Uh, with with sunglasses on can still see it. 
it's ridiculous to me. Like, I hate that philosophy of working on art is to make it for people who are compromising their, uh, t- their taking in of that art. That's not who I make this art for. To me, as a musician, this art I make for me. And I make it for me alone. <laughs> and, and I think musicians should do that too. And to worry, well, what if somebody's not listening with one headphone? That's crazy to me. But I cannot tell you how many times I have had clients say that to me. They're like, well, it just seems kind of awkward. It's like when you listen on headphones, it's really in the right ear only. And it's like, yeah, that's because I panned it to the right. And they're like, well, maybe pan it 50%. And it's like, okay, I can do that, but just realize that there's also a guitar on the left side. So now the mix is going to feel slightly tilted to the left because that guitar on the left was helping to offset the guitar on the right. So do you want me to pan the guitar on the left also to 50 left? Do you want me to put effects on the guitar to make it sort of smudge through the image and sound less awkwardly right? I mean, there's not really a single solution to that problem. And it's really frustrating for me when clients are, are, are they're like LCR averse. They, they're afraid of hard panning things. However, if you play it for them on speakers, they're like, wow, it sounds amazing. Suddenly when it's headphones, they start thinking it sounds awkward. Oh, this kind of goes back to some of the earlier questions about headphones. And one reason I don't like headphones is that they exaggerate the stereo image because they they cut off the room from the equation. They kind of cut off reflections and the sort of smearing that happens uh, in a room. And think about it. Like in real life, when we play instruments, we're in a room. When we listen to bands play on a stage, we're in a room. When we listen to music through speakers, we're in a room. In 90% of situations that we're listening to music, we're in some sort of a room that has some amount of reflections going on to help smear that left and right in just enough of a way to sort of glue the whole thing together. It's really only in headphones where those compromises have to be made uh, to not sound awkward to people. And I don't like that. I don't like compromising the whole... To me, that's like compromising a film uh, for people who are watching on their iPhones. Like to not do something in your film specifically because somebody who might watch this on an iPhone someday and it might not come across the same way. That to me is crazy. Like I think we should make art for the, the ideal circumstance, not for the worst possible circumstance of like, that to me is why it's crazy when people are like, well, I got to check my mix on my iPhone speaker and make sure that I can hear. It's like, sure, check it. But like, don't make any drastic changes that would make it sound worse on good speakers only for it to sound good on iPhone speaker. You know what I mean? Like, don't compromise it for the good thing so that it will sound okay on the bad thing. If that makes sense. I don't know. That's just my opinion on the matter. I don't think we should compromise those sorts of things for headphones, for people who are removing one headphone. Like, I I think they have lost the right to complain when they have removed 50% of the music. You know what I mean? Again, it's like the guy who goes into a movie wearing sunglasses complaining. It's like, okay, what what do you want me to do? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, make the movie extra bright? I mean, it's just, it's crazy talk. 
Um, so stereo image, don't overthink it too much. Try to avoid the use of too many stereo wideners. Try to avoid doing too much stereo widening or any on the master bus. Um, don't overthink panning. Try to pick a couple of pan spots, LCR, 50-50, maybe even 25-25, 75-75. Try to set some limits. Don't just randomly pan stuff around and expect it to sound all right. Or consider this, ignore everything I said and do it your way. <laughs> Okay, so to summarize today's episode, uh, what are some real tangible ways that I can improve my mixes today? <sighs> I can't I can't ignore it, but you've got to make sure your mix environment is solid. Whether you're on headphones or whether you're in speakers, you have to be able to trust your mix environment. Um, you have to be able to know that what you're getting back through the speakers is at least somewhat accurate, a somewhat accurate representation of what's actually happening. You have to be able to be patient. You have to realize that stuff takes time. Okay, You have to take time and experiment with things and give your chance a time to develop these techniques and develop your ears to hear the way these techniques affect your mix. Don't overthink things like the kick and bass or EQ before or after compression or why, why use a delay over a reverb. Stop overthinking things. Just try it and, and see what works. Okay, Try lots of different things and see what works. There are no secrets. And anybody that tells you there are secrets that you don't know um, that big mixers know and that you've been you know, that have been hidden from you. It's just marketing BS. There aren't secrets. There might be things you're not familiar with yet, but it's not a secret. I'll tell you anything you want to know. If you have questions about something I've done or, or anything, just send me an email and I'll tell you. I have no secrets. I mean, there there's no secrets about mixing. Like, there's not something that you've been left out on and, oh, if I could only figure out, like, what those guys know that I don't know, then my mixes would be good. I'm sorry to spoil it for you, but the reason why other people's mixes are better than yours is because of experience, time, patience, experimentation, and just better ear training, better development of what they want to hear, better knowledge of their tools and their systems and the things that they know how to do in the way that they know how to do it. I mean, it, that really is it. There's no secret skill that has been hidden from the world okay especially now with the internet can we really can we really believe some like conspiracy theory that mixers are hiding all their secrets you know what i mean it's like go like i said go go pay for a mix with the master subscription and you'll see like they all just do it differently there's not some divine secret that they all know that none of us know and i know it's easy to to say that and 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 want that to be the truth that Oh, if I just knew if I just knew all the secrets, then I would I'd be as good as them. And I hate to spoil it for you, but it's just not true. It takes a lot of time, a lot of practice, a lot of experience, a lot of listening, a lot of failures, a lot of great mixes, and a lot of bad mixes to really understand what it takes and to really get there. So Hopefully all these tips have been helpful for you. I know that I get a lot of the same questions over and over and over. Hopefully these will at least answer some of them for you. But as always, if you do have questions, comments, show ideas, send them my way, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. 
Check out the blog and the website at recordingloungepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter, which is there to alert you of new episodes and new blog posts and new YouTube videos. Uh, You can do that over at the website as well. If you're interested in supporting this podcast through Patreon, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash recording lounge. Or you can also sign up for a PayPal donation, and you can do that over on our website uh, under the support RL tab. Thanks, everybody, for taking a listen. I'll talk to you next time.